0: It's time for the podcaster who hasn't done a podcast in over six months. That's right, it's Vince, and I'm finally back with a new episode, the first episode of 2019. Happy New Year! And uh, this episode is with North Carolina based cybersecurity researcher and fellow podcaster Charles Tendell. Charles and I spoke uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we discussed Charles's work in the military and how he got into the cybersecurity industry. And we also went off on other random tangents, talking about stuff like social engineering, how he dealt with Hurricane Florence, the border wall, and uh, laying the pipe. Uh, virtue signaling and uh, a lot of other stuff of course lots of uh, uh, talk about information security and some of his information security pet peeves so without any further ado here's my interview with charles tendell enjoy With over 16 years' experience as an accomplished cybersecurity expert and serial entrepreneur, decorated Iraq war veteran Charles Tendell brings a wealth of knowledge and understanding to any scenario, with particular strengths in areas such as ethical hacking and system security, as well as computer forensics, a field he helped pioneer a decade ago. Charles has helped design, implement, and test Thousands of systems assisting individual startups to Fortune 500 organizations and corporate environments maintain their security on the highest possible levels, saving them millions of dollars in the process. Those efforts established him as a subject matter expert with sound strategic thinking and judicious security solutions up his sleeve. His secrets and intimacy of the craft are uncontested in that regard. Throughout his career, Charles has participated in various large scope projects where his expertise was often the decisive factor towards their accomplishments. From launching satellites into orbit, keeping thousands of company employees and data safe from threats, to even directly influencing a multi-bazillion dollar lawsuit with innovative computer forensics. His versatility and skill set have proven to be invaluable assets. Charles also possesses an entrepreneurial spirit that inspired him to create his own security brand, Azorian Cybersecurity. Did I get that right? Azorian? Yep, it's Azorian. Or it was. This is an old bio. Oh, okay. No, you can keep using it. You can keep using it. Okay. Allowing him to approach security challenges with an even more structured approach to detect security breaches and weaknesses other companies weren't able to find, backed by a team of experienced and dedicated professionals. His unique combination of expertise and personality allow him to relate to wider audiences, leading him to become one of the most sought after advocates and public speakers on subjects like cybersecurity and hacking, as well as an expert of choice for leading media outlets that include the New York Times, the Washington Street Journal, the Washington Street Journal. I think I just made that one up. The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNN and several others. His growing public persona and ability to put things in a perspective led – put things in a perspective? I think it should be in perspective. His growing public persona and ability to put things in perspective led him to create – the Charles Tendell Show, a successful podcast reaching over one bazillion unique listeners through traditional broadcast radio and online markets. And now I welcome to the podcast none other than Charles Tendell. Welcome, Charles.
1: Man, you make me sound way more important than I am with that bio.
0: I might have embellished a little bit, but... Uh, I'm in a
1: bazillion bazillion yeah. is a good number i like yeah. the number bazillion <laughs>
0: how, how you doing charles i'm doing well man how are you i'm good it's great to hear your What's voice it? i haven't uh we, we haven't spoken in a while i think the last time i saw you was at defcon
1: right yep uh defcon 26 yeah was, yeah uh, was that the last, that was when you were in the you were in the social media challenge? not social media social engineering challenge
0: yes i did the social engineering yeah. capture the flag that was fun. That I'm was gonna, cool. I am I think I'm going to try to do it one more time this
1: year. Right after the conference, like you inspired me. I was thinking about going and doing it myself. I was like, I think I should do that. I think I should try. Yeah, I think, yeah, I really think a you fun should fun too. Experience.
0: I absolutely think you should do it. I think you'd be great at it. I definitely encourage you to submit. I think you'd be
1: great. I might have to do it. Might have to do it. It'll be a little more peer pressure. I'll drink a couple more beers and then I'll fill out the form.
0: Yeah. You know, you have a video production background, and uh, part of the, the the submission process is submitting a video, and you, you'd knock that out of the park. I think you'd be great.
1: Oh, yeah. The, some of the things that have, have kind of grown and I've kind of dabbled in in the last uh, six months has turned into a bit of a video production little studio that I got growing. So, yeah. Have to, uh, now, are there any special requirements? Is there anything that I need to make sure is in this video? As As someone who has the experience, you might know better. Just
0: make it funny. If you can make the folks that are that are judging the, these applications laugh, you're pretty much golden. Uh-huh. And and you're a funny guy. You, you can pull it off. Just just make something funny. And it has to be short. It has to be a minute and a half. So 90 seconds. You know, some people put a lot of production value into it. Some people like I mine. I was just one single shot all in one take me talking to the camera, pretending like I got social engineered by somebody. Pretending
1: so, like you got social engineered by somebody or pretending like you were social in- engineering someone?
0: Pretending that... Uh, actually, the premise of, of my submission video... And, and actually, it was the premise of my last two because I've done it twice. And um, the both of them were examples of me pretending like I was going to social engineer somebody, but instead, the tables turned on me and the target ended up social engineering me.
1: <laughs> you know, I actually... It sounds like you might have called me. I do that with the salespeople, not the salespeople, the random cold call soliciting people that call. Yeah. You know, they're all spam mail, all the spam phone calls. I answer that phone call and I don't get, I I don't get off the call until either they hang up on me, right. Or I can get them ready to probably buy something. If I can pull that off, I feel like that was a, it was a, it was a productive call.
0: Dude, you'll, you'll knock it out of the park with the, with the social engineering
1: capture the flag then. I not, have to try it. It, it'll be right up your alley. I'm, I'm always nervous about getting out there and doing stuff like that. Cause there's so many good people out there in the industry that I like, I would feel like it was a very fierce competition. I would feel led to do my absolute best. And I don't know if I uh, losing might be soul crushing for me.
0: No, it's not soul crushing to me. It's, it's part performance, part competition, because you're up in front of an audience of like 400 people. I think it's going to be a, in an even bigger room this year and you're really just pr- putting on a performance for an audience. And at the same time, you're competing against other contestants. But it's there's so much positive energy. Like, yeah, you're competing against these people, but they're also cheering you on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's great. And it's very positive. It's, you know, the the whole, uh, you know, Chris Hadnagy, had who puts it on, does a great job of emphasizing, you know, ethical standards and not using negative pretexts, you know, something where, you know, he won't let you call somebody and pretend like you're their boss and that you're going to fire them if you don't give them uh, a password or something like that automatically disqualifies you. So, and, and he, he has this, this saying that um, you should make the, the person that you interact with feel better for having met you and talked to you mm-hmm. and they should uh, leave
1: They should leave it. Like I accomplished something. I did a good thing today. Yeah.
0: Like I helped somebody today. That's how, that's how it's, it's, it's you're supposed to leave it. You're not supposed to leave them feeling like they've been, you know, pwned, <laughs> even though they have
1: social engineering at its finest. They're yeah. not supposed to know you just social engineer them. They're supposed to be happy
0: and going about their day. Yep. Exactly. That's the point. And once you get into it, you, you realize that pretty much every interaction that you have with other people is social engineering. You know, you want, you want to make a friend, you want them to like you, you want to do things that will appeal to them and make them like you and reciprocate. So, you know, in a way you're, you're, you're social engineering your whole life. You're trying to get a job. You're trying to make a sale. That's why like some of these contestants, they have backgrounds in like sales or marketing and they end up doing great because they, they know how, how to elicit responses from people. They know how to sort of empathize with people and build rapport. It's really about building rapport and um, the way you and I met you and I just struck up a conversation. You're really friendly. You know, you find a, some common ground with somebody and you strike up a conversation. It's the same idea, except you just have a goal in mind The you know, you want to get certain information. So it's basically like using the power of persuasion. In every,
1: and that's, you know, that's, I just finished another book. Um. So like I've, 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 I try to make it a point to read more than, than I used to. It, I wouldn't call it a new year's resolution, but it's something that's, that I've all, that I've, I've always tried to tell myself you need to read more. But one of the books that yeah. I just finished reading not too long ago was how to win friends and influence people. Yes. And it sounds like a really, um, when you, when you lay it out, when you lay out the steps for it, it sounds like, oh, you're trying to manipulate a situation. And it's like, no, 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 no. Everyone wants to be understood. And in order for you to get to that level where someone is willing to engage with you, willing to work with you, willing to be on your page, you have to be the first one to understand them. And if you run into those rare occasions where you run into another human being who's trying to do the same thing, then it becomes a very fruitful interaction where you both walk away feeling like, Feeling good about yourselves. You don't feel like you don't feel like anybody lost anything. Nothing was taken from one another. It was something both of you are going to be an experience that you're going to learn from later. And that's kind of how I've been how I've been most of my life. But the premise of the book is treat others the way you want to be treated and listen more than you speak. And you'll get much further and be genuinely interested in what the other person has to say. And that's that's the way we're supposed to go into, like I said, every one of our day to day interactions with people. And sometimes I get sometimes that's some people sometimes people take that really weird with me. Like um, it was an RSA last year. I met some folks uh, out in San Francisco where I've run into people who aren't comfortable with me essentially studying them. Like I'm there to understand you, to learn you, to get to know you, to know more about you. And I found myself prefacing that like, Hey, I'm going to, I want to know more about you. I want to learn more about you. I want to know more about this. I want to want to learn about this. I want to learn about that. And I have finally ran into somebody who was like, you know, you don't have to do that. Everybody actually is expecting that at least with me, I'm expecting you to want to learn about me. And that's what makes it so much better. That's what makes all of our encounters so much better is coming from a place of understanding.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I think uh, that's part of what attracts me to the, to the hacker community, is that um, curiosity and wanting to, you know, learn how things work, learn how people work, and um, you know, it it's, it applies to you know, social inter- interactions just as much as it does to you know how to take apart a computer or whatever.
1: Yeah, and this, that's actually something that most people don't think about when it comes to hacking. Right there's there's as much there's as much social interaction work necessary as there is technical there is as much in understanding other people um, as there is in understanding the technology behind it from my perspective it's in a lot of my career has been getting people to understand or to see it from a non-technical perspective in a way that they're going to be able to assimilate that information you know they're going to be able to learn it they're going to be able to know it they're going to be able to to receive it in a way that works best for them so there's so much more social in it than what most people want to give credit for you know but It's hard when you've got a bunch of really smart people in the room, all all hardcore trying to think about, you know, in most cases, black and white, how something really is or really isn't, you know, because from the technical standpoint, it either is it's either a one or a zero. There is no gray area there. Speaking of your career, how did you get into
0: information security? Did it start when you were in the military? Oh, no. Um
1: in the Army, it was like I, I kind of got, hey, you, they came to the realization that I had a, a special skill to be able to use technology when I went in. Um, and I, and that's the part that started my military career in terms of security. But my first one, um, and, I, and I tell this story all the time and, and much to my father's, I guess, dismay, is it, my father brought home our first computer when I was a small boy and said, don't touch it. And from that point forward, I was naturally all over it, you know. If he had come in and said, go for it, I probably would have gone off and done something else with my life. But he gave me an obstacle to overcome. And the first time I got that computer connected to the Internet, I was hooked. The First time I found a bulletin board, the first time I found found a, a, a use group or anything like that, I was hooked. First time I realized I could reach every portion of the globe with just a keyboard, I was I was stuck. And I've been there ever since. And then um, in the military, what was your role there? Uh, when I started in the military, I was uh, an air defender. I was a missile defense crew member. Um, it a fancy way of saying we use Stinger missiles and a computer on the back of a Humvee to blow up things, to shoot down planes. And I ended up working on my battalion level, and then I ended up on uh, core level or 82nd Airborne Division and higher level with doing computers because one thing kept leading to another where they needed somebody to be able to bend kind of those rules when it came to technology about stuff. You know, there was some questionable understanding about levels of technology. And this is before security was called security. You know, nobody really knew what it was. They were just hobbling all these networks together, all these infrastructures together and saying, it works. Let's try and keep, you know, malicious people from doing things on them. Um, and then I got assigned an additional duty out to military intelligence and did a lot of work with like CID and did a lot of work with MPI. And What's CID? Deployed. What's CID? Oh, that's the Army Criminal Investigations Division. They are, they are the guys, they are, they are the as close to civilian entity as they, you can get visually that do all the special investigations for the Army, for uh, the Army and the organizations attached to it that service it, things of that nature. They do big drug investigations. They do, you know, all of the fun things that you would, you would think would be slightly beyond the military police.
0: Any uh, cool stories you can share from that? Have you busted any uh, uh, Marines uh, smuggling heroin or anything cool like that?
1: No, um, I was doing more the kind of the remedial stuff. They confiscated a computer somewhere. They couldn't figure out how to get around a password. They, They had a question about how somebody was using a particular piece of email or something like that. And they didn't really understand how that was. And that's how I got involved there. I did a lot of, I guess you would call electronic skip tracing of people back then as well. And then when we got into Iraq and I was doing things with them... Uh, it was help us build a communications network and it was we've got all these computers that aren't in English and we don't know how to to navigate them. Can you do it? And if you've ever touched a computer, regardless of what languages it's in, it's all kind of in the same place. It's all set up kind of the same way. So that's where they came and got me for different things. They, I think the most exciting thing about my military career and my, my I guess, my my hacker portion of it was I got woken up. Uh, two, two o'clock in the morning because somebody had lost the password to a, a a battle tracking laptop in the middle of a field exercise. And the people who were supposed to know, it know the password weren't there. And long story short, they, they came and got me, woke me up, and I had to get a full bird kernel to tell me to break a password on a laptop because the security classification was higher than my current security classification. And it took me 15 minutes to blank a password, if that, on a Windows computer and turned it over to them. And everybody looked at me in the room, like it, you made us jump through all of these hoops just so you would spend, you know, 10 minutes screwing with this computer to be able to get us the password. I'm like, yeah, I didn't want to go to jail. That's exactly why I made you do it that way.
0: So when you got out of the military and came back to civilian life, is that when you started your cybersecurity firm or, or what, what, what happened after the military?
1: Oh no. Uh, right when I got out, um, There's that customary year when you get out of the army or you get out of the armed forces after being in for a little bit where we all kind of stretch our legs and try and figure out what civilian life is going to offer us. Like I had these these vague ideas as to what I wanted to do. Um, I had this kind of mini plan that I was going to get out. And six months later, I was going to go right back in because they were, you know, they were shuffling things around. And it was hard for me to get the jobs that I really wanted in the army. It was hard for me to get into the MOS that I wanted. And in order to do it, I was going to play a reset game. And I was planning on only being out for six months and then turning right back around and going to uh, MI school, military intelligence school. And this was before Cyber Command existed and all this other stuff. And I look back on it now and I think if I had actually followed through on that plan, I'd probably be sitting in Cyber Command right now. I probably would have watched that place be birthed and watch it grow into the machine that it is today. And it would have been something really cool to, to look back on. But I have no regrets. I got out and... I moved around for a little bit. I bounced from job to job for a little bit, but then got picked up with Boeing, working um, network security and administration for a ground control satellites. um, The original, the early GPS satellites for the military and absolutely loved it in the civilian world and was making more money than I knew what to do with. And my six month plan kind of went out the window and I was with Boeing for about a year. right. I was there about a year with those guys and then set out one year right before Mother's Day to do my own consultancy was like, I want to be an independent contractor. I want to solve new problems every day. I want to chase down different things. And I just felt kind of called to go and do that. So I gave my notice and I I quit. And in those those worlds, when you give your notice, your your classified information, you can uh, sometimes you stay for your two weeks, sometimes you don't. But I gave my notice, and when my time was t- when it was time for me to go, I ended up uh, leaving on like a Thursday instead of the the end of the week. I ended up leaving on a Thursday and Saturday morning. I picked up my first independent client that I was building a secure topology and uh, doing infrastructure tests, doing what would later be called penetration tests on um, a hospital local. And it's been a career move. It's been a a problem solving environment ever since. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine my career doing anything other than me going out and finding new challenges to solve, new problems to change. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So, after uh, Boeing and bouncing around and becoming a consultant and doing my own thing there, uh, right after that, shortly after that is about when I started Azorian. It was a few years past that. And before Azorian, I actually started a computer forensics company in Denver and made enough noise for one of my big competitors to to notice me and eventually buy me out. and then post that is when Azorian happened. so what what are you up to now? Well, the latter portion of my career, I mean, I did a lot of the news media thing and was was like you said, like a, a my bio. Every time somebody re- reminds me of my bio, I'm like, man, that was written by uh, PR people, and it was written by, by all these great people and every time i hear it i'm like that guy sounds really important oh it's me i'm not important now. you know but um the apex of my career about 2015 uh, kind of went viral a little project called a, a hackers list and it was it was an idea that caught traction much faster than i expected it to so last few years i've been been dealing with that and the realization that the general populace like most of the people on the planet have no idea about technology. They have no idea, idea about hackers. They have no idea about, about what is and really isn't possible. And there was nobody else in that space. And in the last several years, my career has kind of uh, blown up, which is, I think how, how um everybody, the, how the podcast got started, how the web pages got started and everything else was, well, this propelled me to a level where I need to be able to speak on behalf of people and say, this is, what is and what isn't and there was nobody else doing it and I kept going and that's where I've been ever since now the last six months uh, like you have been kind of off my game I've been been kind of out of the industry we kind of kind of marinating and settling down and doing all those other things because you know hurricane will kind of do that to you that's right we, we, we should note that you are located in North Carolina
0: which just had a devastating hurricane last year Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Tell, tell me about that. How'd that affect you?
1: Well, uh, Eastern North Carolina, we got hit by hurricane Florence. Um, if it had been a bigger city, we probably would have been a little bit of further off, but hurricanes have a tendency to take a big bite out of your economy locally. Um, it shut down businesses, it shut down the internet, it shut down anybody's ability to really do anything. And since my business and my, my consultancy and everything I was doing was pretty predominantly online, it was near impossible to be able to do that. But it, also kind of revealed a little bit of a a missing need in my local community so with my show uh the charles tendell show i built a broadcast studio i built a, a recording studio a place where i would be able to do my show outside of my home because it finally outgrew that spot and it turned, the studio became very useful locally to be able to get out information during the hurricane and it gained traction and people loved it. And I've been kind of tied up in that ever since as well. So that's, that's a positive that came out of it. But man, we had water, (laughs) we had water come up to the back of the house. You know, we had places in the city that, that they're never, we're never going to get them back. They're just gone. Um, we've got, we've still got hotels and other things that are still still busted that are never going to that they're, they're just going to wear a year out before those get fixed. You know, we had a lot of people, we had a mass exodus that happened and as you can imagine what happens when you have a massive amount of people leave a place that their revenue and everything else leaves with them. Um schools took a big hit. I mean, it was it's just a big mess. A lot of people see the the impact of things like a hurricane on television and they see the physical destruction. Right, they see the the high waters. They see the torn off roofs. They see the high winds. They see the, the flooded cars. They see all that other stuff. Um, sometimes they see the 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 death and destruction that it brings, but they never get to see the the emotional and the 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 life impacts after the fact nobody ever gets to see that because the cameras are gone because if you haven't been through it you don't really you don't really get it and it takes time right it's like uh if you've ever been to the hospital and you were in the hospital for a while and those muscles have been allowed to rest and now you're trying to get back up and you're not sure where you are and you're shaky but personally we did okay we were we were blessed and highly favored in in this particular incident like we we came really close, and if it if it had, if it had, if it had come ashore a little bit further north than where it did, if it had been a if it had been a, a category three or a stronger two than what it came ashore with, we would have been we would have been decimated. It would have been I wouldn't be having this conversation because <laughs> it would have just been torn up and gone. But we were blessed. We were we were pretty well covered in that sense. I mean, it's it's still got its damages. It's still got its stuff that we've still got to pick up from. But overall, we're doing all right.
0: Yeah, that one was the one that just sort of just hovered right on the shore, right? It oh, didn't yeah. it mm-hmm. just kinda like was in a holding pattern there and, and
1: took its time to to move inland, right? Oh yeah. Uh it was Florence. She she came in and it was it was weird because she was just a big slow moving girl coming in, but when When we first started talking about it, they were projecting it to hit land as a category four hurricane. And if it had come ashore as a category four, the city would have been completely evacuated. People who couldn't get out and people would have drowned. It would have just been over. It would have just, it would have been probably the most destructive thing this part of the country has seen in years. And it still was, even as a two. But yeah, it came ashore and it stalled. It just sat there for, I think it was like a week. That it just hovered over top of us, just dumping rain and everything. And where my little city is is, we are at the the connection point of two of North Carolina's biggest rivers, uh, the Neuse and the Trent River. And all of the water that the that Florence was dumping upstate, that it was dumping further north in North Carolina, further further west in North Carolina all of that water comes downstream and ends up right here. It comes right back. So not only did we get the storm surge and the rain and everything, right after all of that, we got – and the water table was already high. We already had everybody underwater. And then right after that, the when the rain finally stopped and Florence decided to move her slow-moving butt on, uh, we got the torrential rain coming from northern northern and western uh, North Carolina. And it just resaturated everything after that. And then the part that most people didn't, didn't know is – even after Florence left, like we were, we got blue skies for like three days and then we got the tail end of a couple other tropical storms. So it went hurricane and all the de- the destruction that brought all the water that that brought to now we're going to get the runoff from it and to, oh, by the way, here's more rain for you guys. So we were pretty well saturated for a long time. You know what I don't get?
0: Okay. I'm in California. We can't get enough water. You're on the east coast where you get too much water now people can construct pipelines that funnel oil across the country why hasn't somebody done the same thing with water let's get elon musk to build a tunnel system to funnel all that
1: water that you guys have over to us where we need it desperately why hasn't that happened from what I've heard, Elon Musk is turning into a supervillain. So I don't know if he'll want to do that. He'll want to control the world's water supply that way. He might. He might. I well, recommend-
0: I, I'm not counting on Elon Musk, but you know, <laughs> like we've got people like that out there. We've got all this, this ingenuity and, and technology, and it's
1: ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Well, I mean, there's no money behind it, honestly. There, I mean, there probably would be if you were to set up irrigation and do all that other stuff and be like, look, agriculture, we can solve this and we can bring water to this and we pay these prices for that. But oil is more, it's more valuable. You know, people are going to invest in stuff like that, and they've got the money to invest in stuff like that, and they see their return on stuff like that. And we're a we're a gains we're we're a capital gains driven society. You know, unless somebody's going to do it for the absolute good of their heart, nobody's going to do it. That and there are little pipelines. I mean, Vegas is still powered and and partially fed water wise by the Colorado River. You know, but I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a good that's a, a an agricultural question or a. Uh, maybe we should ask the president. That's what we should do. We should get money for building a pipeline.
0: Yeah, I'm sure he'll be right on. He'll, <laughs> I'm sure I'll get right on top of that. I mean, we could build the pipeline on top of the pipeline.
1: We could build a wall.
0: Yeah, that's right. Hey, let's. Yeah, look. Okay, we'll give you the wall if you put a pipeline along with 100.
1: it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, see, compromise, compromise. See, we just did. We just in fact, did. the pipeline can be the wall. You could just make the pipeline
0: above ground, make it extra big. And it's even more than it's even harder to get over because it's like circular. How do you climb over something that's 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 got that that's like a tube, you know, and you could put spikes on it. We can do this, man. We could kill two birds with one stone, man. We can keep the criminals and the rapists out of the country. At the same time, we can solve the water problem in the West and the flooding in the East. It's the perfect
1: solution. Build the wall, No, <laughs> build the pipe, build the pipe, build the pipe. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't say that. I would say the slogan would change. It would be lay the pipe. Lay- that would yes. be the the pipe. That would yes. be the slogan changing. Perfect. That would be the slogan change. And well, you well, know, maybe we could get, maybe we could get more people to actually laugh at that. Yeah. We'll get J.R.
0: Smith to, to be the spokesman because he's, he's famous for, for laying the pipe. He's like,
1: you, you looking for, you looking for the pipe, You're trying to get the pipe. Oh, could you remember that could you imagine the commemorative plaques though? This pipe laid here in 2019. Oh man, it would be horrible. It would be an optics nightmare for so many people. But I've been out of the loop and I've been seeing like tensions like that, right? I'm glad we can laugh about it. I'm glad we can we can engage on it and not have a horrible fight, dude. Because I have been sitting back and one thing that that not having um, your infrastructure sitting underneath you gives you a lot of time to kind of just peruse the internet and see what's going on where and see who's talking about what and see what people are angry about and what people aren't angry about. And people are angry about everything. I know. I was just going to say there's,
0: there's stuff that people aren't angry about.
1: I have no idea what that could be. Uh, kittens. People kittens? are still not angry about kittens. Uh, on the internet. So uh, fluffy cat videos are still safe. And, I don't know what it's like out in California, but sitting on the East Coast watching all of this stuff, man, are we polarized, man, and I don't get it. We're at the point now where the, the court of public opinion and the court of social justice allows you to literally just say something and destroy someone, right, And and keep people on their toes, and because of that, we've got a lot of people who are worried about what they want to say, worried about what they can say, worried about, you know, what once was a joke is no longer a joke, you know, what's going to be offensive today, what's not offensive, you know. You got a lot of people worried about that. And it's created this environment of self governance where, as long as you can prove that it's a joke, it's okay to laugh at. We just have to remind people that it's okay to laugh at. Now, the completely far extreme racist jokes, misogynist jokes, you're going to take it, you're, you're, you better be thick skinned and you better be prepared for the, the, the dumpster fire you're about to get, especially if you don't gauge your room, right? Especially if you're, you're not paying attention, right? And especially if, if you say something that's completely out of line. But it's so hard nowadays to know how far out of line is. Dude, it's
0: really sad if you have to preface something as a joke or have to say just kidding. It's either funny or, or it's not. And you laugh or you don't. I used to love Eddie Murphy, raw, delirious. Those records were freaking hilarious. He couldn't get away with that stuff now. No way. You can't get you can't get away with stuff
1: from from a few years ago now.
0: Yeah, you can't get away with. Stuff they had they made a Dukes of Hazard movie what like ten years ago. There's no nope. way in hell that'd be made now. No,
1: no. You like you you. I go back and I look at the mid '90s. I look at the late '80s, even the early two thousands. The stuff that we were joking about saying on openly right comedians then they'd be crucified now they would be dismantled right now for for that was too far this was too far and you know there are a lot of comedians that are talking about that you know it's hard to be a comedian nowadays because what you once thought was funny right and what once would get you a bunch of laughs you run the risk of there being that one person in there who's not laughing they're offended and they're going to go on an angry twitter rant or even worse there's
0: somebody that really shouldn't be offended, but they're offended on behalf of somebody else who they think should be offended.
1: Exactly. Uh, That's racist. That's
0: racist. Um, uh, But you're, you're white. What are you talking about? The guy behind you, the brother behind you, he doesn't seem to have a problem with it.
1: He didn't think that was racist. Now, you know, that's something else. And, uh, be, having been out of the mix, just kind of looking, um, with the current political climate, the current climate in our country, there are a lot of people trying to get what we, what I, what I, what me and my new producer have coined as being woke points, right? They're trying to prove how how woke they are by overemphasizing some sort of offense, yes. or they're standing in for some sort of of defense. Against someone who's a minority or a person of color or a female or transgender or even cisgender. Like, there are people who are overreacting to that. They're like, oh, look, woke points times 10, got it, earned it. Like, it's some sort of, you know, Pokemon Go version where you catch enough of these things and then all of a sudden you get automatically entered into some contest to win a free puppy or something. It's called performative wokeness. Performative wokeness? There's a term for this? Yes, performative wokeness. My goodness. Yeah. I didn't know there was, a, I didn't know there was an actual term for it. We've gotten to the point where there's a term for it. Yeah. I, we were just calling it woke points. Like you're trying to get your, you're trying to get hardcore getting them woke points. I guess it's commonly known as virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. Yeah. That's the one that I, that I know. Like, did you, did you catch the Gillette commercial that set, apparently set the internet on fire? Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't see anything wrong with the commercial. It uh, said, stop being, stop being jerks. Right. Yeah. But the internet did the internet's thing.
0: Yeah, you know, I was indifferent to it. Like I I I I can see why people would be offended either way. Like yeah, it does like I could see how you could read into that and think like they're trying to portray all men as being misogynist jerks. And there are a ton of misogynist jerks out there, no doubt about it. Um But, uh, but again, uh, you know, personally, it didn't really bother me at all. I don't care. Like it's, 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 it's a free country. It's free speech. It's their commercial. They can put it, whatever message they want out there. If they think kids need to see a razor commercial or, or, or parents need to see a razor commercial to figure out that they have to raise their kids to be good people, then
1: uh, I guess that's where we're at. But um, I I think that. Go ahead. What I personally think the, I think the bigger problem here is we didn't learn anything from the, the the talking squawk box teaching our children back in the day when commercials were advertising cigarettes to them. We didn't learn enough about how that all works. That you should probably, you know, be mindful of the stuff that you put on there. You should probably consider the behaviors of things that are on there. We we didn't think that through. And we didn't learn from those mistakes of the past. So now people are trying to correct them through the same kind of media. They're trying to put out the same kind of messages are supposed to be out there when in reality, it's just be good people to each other. And I don't know, home training is a thing, but it is the evolution of us. It's the evolution of who we are as a society. And we can either choose to get stuck here or we can grow. I, I think
0: ultimately what it comes down to is people just don't like to be told what to do. People don't like to be preached at. And I feel like that, that I could see how people would be taken aback um, by that in the sense that, hey – don't tell me what I ha- what I should and shouldn't be doing. It's just a, such a mixed bag. It's t- it's uh, it's mm-hmm. tough. It's tough. Gillette, you really want to become the morality police? Look at PETA. PETA hates Gillette because they they test on animals. Like, where's the morality in that?
1: You know, may, they could get called out for that. Where does it end? Where you it know, doesn't. Like so I had to, I, somebody asked me this question at breakfast one morning actually Parker my my producer asked me this question he said if you weren't offended by it is it still racism and my initial response was no if I'm not offended by it it's not racism because you didn't do anything that actually offended me but somebody else to somebody else yeah that's offensive that's going to be racist that's going to be a thing but we can't control everyone else. And I think that's where you were going. I think that's the point. We can't tell everyone else to, how to feel. We can't tell everyone else what is and isn't offensive. We can't tell everyone else what your virtue should be. We can't tell anyone else how they should be, should or shouldn't behave, be behaving unless we do it first, unless we show them that behavior first. If we change ourselves or we change who we are because that's the only thing that's within our power to control, Right if we change who we are and how we approach a situation the offense disappears it melts away when you step to someone with a true under, with a true desire to understand them there's literally nothing they can do that isn't with that an offense is going to be the only thing you take away from that because you want to learn, you want to engage them, you want to know, well, why did you just do that? Are you doing it just to be a a, a complete ass or are you doing it because you don't know any better? Are you doing it because you're just ignorant? Or are you doing it because it's how you were raised? What is the why behind this motivation? And we're in a point now where the offense is the first response, it's the first reaction, it's the first thing people go with. And they're not taking a second, taking a deep breath and asking themselves why. And I think if we did that as people, we learned to control ourselves. As people, we would see we would see a whole another world. We would see all we the the offensive stuff, all of this offense. That's not new, right? That's not at all new. The response and availability for me to make a whole heck of a lot of noise, for me to go viral, for me to become the catch me outside girl, for me to become all these different things. That's what's new. Yeah. And people are using that to become insta famous. Right their there, there hats off to Zuckerberg and the rest of the social media people. They figured out that people were going to get addicted to the the little, the little jolts of is it dopamine or whatever it is that pops into your system. Every time you get a notification that says so-and-so responded to or replied to or did anything like that, hats off to them for figuring that out, how to capitalize on that, that addiction and that desire for people, poor execution and getting people to think through and challenge everything before they just respond emotionally. Yeah. It's the age of the keyboard cowboy right now. It's the age of the overshare, super selfie, um, digital persona is my life kind of thing. And it's growing and it's growing every single day. And it's, I don't know. I don't know where we go from here next. I think it's getting close to a
0: tipping point because more and more like with the the Facebook thing, what was it last year, where Zuckerberg went before Congress, and they found out about how they, you know, Cambridge share,
1: Analytica and everything
0: else. Yeah, Cambridge Analytica and all that stuff. I think that that put put the whole the whole idea of you're not the customer, you're the product. I think that put that on the the radar of people on the mainstream, and I think mm. people are slowly starting starting to catch on starting to get a little more skeptical a little more paranoid about what they're sharing and who they're sharing it with i think there's been enough horror stories out there enough uh hacks that have been publicized where people's personal information has been exposed that it's it's starting to catch on with the mainstream that Hey, maybe it's not such a great idea to overshare every aspect of your life. I mean, also, I disagree.
1: Oh, really? Okay, I do. Yeah, because of everything that I've done, right? Like uh, media, the podcast, the the show, the radio stuff, all that stuff. Uh, because of that, mostly because of, of of hackers list and how that propelled me in between the the consumer and and the community. Right. It was I can tell you from my experience, these people do not care. They care very little about uh, whether their their email gets hacked unless there's something in there that they're worried about. They care very little about what they're sharing on the Internet. They care very little about whether they are or are not hacked unless it's impacted their life in one form or another. Most people are totally content with sharing their location, with showing that sharing their pictures with sharing their information, with putting this stuff out there on a platform Knowing that you pretty much agreed to be the product, most people are totally, totally fine with that until they get hacked. Until something comes up on them, until they're worried about it. But all the mainstream headlines, in spite of the headlines, and in some cases because of the headlines, most people are like, "Yeah, meh, it's another breach." Uh, like I saw a headline the other day from uh, from Troy Hunt. What was it? Another another million right either right toward the end of two thousand and eighteen or early January two thousand nineteen. Big breach, bunch of emails dumped all over the internet. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Consumers did not care. They are at breach fatigue point. They are at this is just the normal excuse. This is just the normal thing that goes with with using technology, with using the services that we want. I'll nuke it from orbit and start all over. It doesn't bother me. Right. I'm going to go right back to sharing these epic selfies, these epic pictures of my cat talking about my dinner, these precomposed happy shots about everything that I'm doing. As long as you don't prevent me from doing that, I'm totally fine with it. You can have, and, and I think, honestly, the idea of having any more legislation, that is going to do absolutely zero. That's going to do nothing. It, you, you, in the Army, we had a saying, right? You create a more Joe-proof or a more soldier-proof object, you're going to create a better soldier trying to get around it. You create more legislation. These corporations aren't going to spend the money to actually defend against them. They're going to f- spend money to decrease their liability period. They're not going to spend the money to be like, oh, let's defend ourselves. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, how can we get out of paying millions of millions and millions of dollars on this in the long term and still meet this minimum requirement that's now required by us by the federal government? That's all they're going to do. And in the end, they're going to figure out ways to dodge the legislation. And we're still going to have these massive breaches. The other aspect is the breaches keep happening because we have people and we're not talking to the people. We're not engaging the people. We're not we're we're not implementing good security just for the sake of implementing good security right now. We're just putting product out there. We're not putting it together. We're not even trying anymore because the manufacturers can dodge a liability. Nobody's gonna get held responsible. The consumer doesn't care, so it's still kind of the wild, wild west.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I just feel like that there has been a little bit more progress made and as far as awareness. You're right. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right about yeah. People are are aware of these these uh, intrusions and stuff, and yeah, maybe they're indifferent to it and just are kind of numb to it. But at least they're uh, they know that that happens now. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I I, th- I think it w- it wasn't as well publicized.
1: In there, I mean, and and it's kind of our fault. I mean, it's for us to to mostly take the blame of that. Every time up until the reality of breaches became something that the general populace knew, every time they heard about a breach, it was somebody hacked into the Department of Defense and is trying to launch, you know, play, trying to play global thermal nuclear war, right? That's what they were hearing. They were seeing this as dramatic games and things of that nature. It, it, my pictures on the internet, meh. My, my kids on the internet, well, they're not really doing anything. What are they going to use the kids' information for? They're not really worried. They're not really phased. Now – everybody is loosely aware that breaches occur everybody is loosely aware that that these platforms exist with you as the product in fact i had a a pretty long i wouldn't say long in the age in the in the late age of twitter you know it was it was a couple of tweets back and forth with someone who genuinely believed that in order for us to fix the the overshare, lack of security ability for organizations like Facebook and and Google to continue to hoard your information and sell it without your reprieve was to give more notification, to give the consumer more ability to have informed consent about what they're giving away. And my feeling on that was the consumer is informed. They know what they're giving away. They know what they know what it is costing them to get access to the internet beyond just their dollar. They know what it is on their phone. They know what it is on their Facebook. They know what it is on their social media. They know that they're using these platforms to be able to be sold ads. They know it. They know that. There's no there's no mistaking that for anything out there. You know that you're, it's ad-driven. You know that's how it works. They don't care how you handle their data as long as it doesn't impact their use of that platform. Hmm.
0: Something sort of semi-related. Um. I've noticed um, on online dating sites, not that I go on those, but uh, from what I hear, you can go on these sites and let's say you're looking for somebody, I don't know, from the ages of 34 to 60, and you will find people who post to their profile pictures of themselves with their kids, their underage kids on a dating site, you know, not censored, not blurred out. And it just boggles my mind. You know, there's child predators out there. There's sociopaths There's psychopaths There's serial killers. And yet you go on these dating sites and here here's, you know, a grown man, a grown woman posing in a dating site picture with their kid. They don't know who's on there. There's all kinds of sleazy people that that could be on there and could be, you know, trying to to to, you know, might be child predators and and see a, a picture of you with your kid and and want to get close to you so they could get close to your kid.
1: It's just, it's crazy. It's it's ludicrous. Yeah, there are definitely there are, there are definitely some some sick twisted people in the world. I mean, when I was doing forensics, we ran into some. Oh you want to talk about interesting cases there were there was one that involved a young girl that involved some some uh, just everything horrible you could imagine in the particular case and then the in twist was that it wasn't the person we thought it was right it was not the person that that inevitably con- confessed to this nonsense that was doing it and yeah there are some sick twisted really hurt people in the world. There are hurt people hurting people. And there are people who grew up in environments that are that think some of those things are normal. They think that this is the way of life. This is how they're engaging. And again, we can spend all day every day trying to figure out how to fix these people and trying to figure out uh, what's wrong with them trying to protect people trying to prevent them from communicating trying to block them from the internet trying to track them trying to put them on lists trying to do all this other stuff. We can spend all day doing that. But in the end, we're whenever we're, we're not going to change those people, right? Those people have to want to be do something different. They have to be shown something different. They have to be engaged with differently. And we have to change the way we treat them. We have to change the way we we put it out there. We have to tell these parents, hey, Let's not go putting your kids out on social media. You know, if you are going to put your kids out on social media, know how you're putting your kids out there. Let's not, let's damn sure not put them on a dating website inadvertently, unless it's it's um, a familiesonly.com. I don't know if that's a thing, right? You'll never be lonely at familiesonly.com. Is that a thing? I don't know if that one's a thing. I know farmers only is a thing. But if it's a website that's geared to, you know, single parents dating other single parents, I got you. If it's, hey, look, I have kids, be mindful of what you put on the internet and. Don't put your kids in risk. Yeah. There's
0: nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I have kids and I'm looking to date. Just don't put the picture of your freaking kid on there. Yep. Anyway. Okay. So uh, let's get back to uh, security. I want to know what are some of your pet peeves? I mean, you probably have covered a lot of them, but uh, what are some pet peeves of yours in regards to the information security industry?
1: One of the things that I struggle with mostly is how we have a cybersecurity industry that is so disconnected from the hacker community, like how that happens is one of my pet peeves. Like, how do we have an entire army of book smart people who don't don't understand the culture? Right. And then how do we have this wall? Between the community and the industry, and why is it seems to be there's this struggle between the two for integration? You know, like Black Hat and 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 DefCon sitting next to one another. You know, you get most of the guys who go to Black Hat are like, ah, I might go to DefCon, but it's really not my style. Or you get the guys who go to DefCon are like, ah, I'm not going to the corporate world; it's not my style. So that separation is is kind of a minor pet peeve. I think the bigger pet peeve for me with with our industry has to do with we're really good at selling crap to each other we're really good at selling widgets and programs and styles and designs to each other we're really really good at that you know we're also really good at selling fear uncertainty and doubt to people who don't generally understand the technology and that has become the the normal that has become the the how we get you to embrace cybersecurity as a thing is to tell you the world is gonna freaking end If you don't use strong passwords, right? If you make this mistake, your company is going to end. We go to the the end to the highest, most dramatic sense to be able to sell whatever it is that we're selling to people, and we sell this environment that technology is is inevitably hostile it is uncontrollably hostile there's always somebody bad or evil or something out there trying to invade your personal computer invade your iot invade your car invade your your infrastructure or your SCADA. It's, you know it's it's we've always got somebody that's trying to attack us and that's not really the case there's not that much attack structure right there's not that much malicious there's not that many malicious people trying to do these different things so that one is a big pet peeve of me but then the part that scares me from that is we've begun to buy our own propaganda. We've begun to to believe it. We've begun to to fight it. We've begun to chase it, just uh, regardless of whether there's firm basis, regardless of whether there is factual evidence, regardless of, of the full scale of the threat for something, we jump straight to the most extreme, and we as professionals, we as practitioners, latch onto that. You know, and I think we need to take more time to breathe. We need to take more time to to not react. And we need to give some real sober um, looks to a lot of the tools, the programs, the ideas, the mechanisms, everything we've got in this industry and apply some real thought to it as opposed to just reaction. So my big pet peeve is is buying our own propaganda and selling uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt. And I've got what I'm hoping for and hoping I'm wrong is it looks like there's a lot also a lot of drama in the industry that's going on that's stemming from a lot oh of you're other,
0: kidding so you're kidding I I wouldn't I would never have known that from looking at infosec twitter oh
1: man see I I've been off infosec twitter right I have been off infosec oh, twitter good for, for you good for you and bro and I got back on, right? Like it was, you know, we're booting back up. We're going back out into the into the things. And uh, I think I've licked my wounds enough. Well, dude, I'm still I'm still pretty shaky with all of this, but I think I, I've I've licked my wounds enough and I'm getting back up and I'm looking at, it and the second I boot it back up, I'm like, oh, somebody's arguing about whose Merlin complex is having over here. Somebody said something sexist, somebody said something misogynist, somebody broke up with somebody, somebody doesn't like blue. What in the hell? is going on here, right? And I'm like, okay, turning it off, right? Turning the notifications back off, going to tuck that one back in. I'll wait till we get closer to get it booted up. So it's, I think the drama is distracting in some cases. I think we've got a lot of drama that's distracting a lot of people from real good stuff. I think the the society norms of being offended by everything have creeped its way into the community to now where you can't make you can't make pipe puns anymore without offending someone because you know somebody's going to get offended by this this episode right oh, about like, our, our well, la- la- about our laying the pipe exactly somebody's going to be like lay the pipe and then it's just going to become yeah. a i'm yeah. pissed off at that sorry
0: not sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i think those are the ones um Let's see. So we've got we've got two. Uh, maybe I'll give you a third one. I think there is the long-running Merlin complex that we have in our industry. What's the Merlin we're
0: complex? From... I'm not familiar with that one.
1: I call it the Merlin Complex. The Merlin Complex is these this is my book of magic spells. Right? Uh-huh. These are my book of, of of infinite hacks, and you can't have them. Um I'm uh. I'm the top dog. You can't challenge me. And if you do, I'm gonna rain fury and anger down upon you. It's not nearly as bad as it once were. Was Right. But I still run across those people who are like they have forgotten that we were all noobs. We all started at the same point. And we're the industry isn't old enough for people to be like, oh, no, I totally never had to start. You know, I, I totally I, I don't remember the day when I first discovered a computer, the when I first discovered how to code or when I first discovered scripting or my first distro. Like none of us are so old in the industry that we cannot remember where it was to begin. But there are some people in the industry who are still like, yeah, I've been in this industry for 20 years, and I don't care what you have to say. I'm a th- top dog. I've earned my stripes. I can say what I want. I don't have to care about your opinion, so on and so forth. So I'm going to belittle you. That's probably m- lower on my list of of pet peeves in the industry. But I think the other two are pretty heavy. Yeah,
0: I totally hear you about um, sort of the incestuous nature of the InfoSec community at least the, the community that I see on Twitter. And I think it's important. I, I think you you, you you touched on this. It's important to remember that just because just you see these people on Twitter tweeting about hacking and, and information security, that's not the information security industry as a whole. Those are just a niche group or clique, if you will, of people that congregate on Twitter and talk about stuff and if you go like when we go to RSA, we're going to see thousands and thousands of people that we've never heard of ever on Twitter. Yep. And yep. there's so much more to it than just the the people that 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 are on Twitter. Um, and one thing that I think about that. In, that that i've noticed about the the information security industry with these conferences is i mean I, i love going to these conferences for a lot of reasons you know mostly to to meet people make friends you know new friends catch up with old friends network and uh and learn new things but i also think that a lot of times the people that put on that, you know, everybody's really, really like psyched about doing their, 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 their talk at, at the next conference and, and at the next conference and at the next conference. But the next conference is always an information security conference. It's always a hacking conference and you're just preaching to the choir. Of course, there's new research, there's new discoveries that, that absolutely have a place in these conferences to share with your peers. But Maybe some of these talks don't need to be at every single information security conference. Maybe you should take your talk to a cosmetics conference, to an agricultural conference. And, yeah, and, and
1: hasn't heard this. Before, yeah.
0: Yep. And, and And spread the word to other industries that are all now part of. This digital infrastructure and everybody needs to be aware of security. And I I really would like to see these these really talented, smart people like branch out. Yeah, you could keep going to DEF CON and do do your talk and, and, and and hang out with your buddies and all that stuff but maybe you know instead of going to 25 infosec conferences maybe go to 20 and then submit a paper or a talk to five conferences that have nothing to do with with your industry
1: like i would like yeah. to see more of that i would too and I, I mean i did my my little tour on the the presentation circuit i was doing mostly uh, e discovery computer forensics i was dealing with a lot of lawyers i was talking in front of a lot of law enforcement but one of the coolest ones that I actually ended up speaking in front of, was I got invited out to a, a company in Syracuse, New York, and they put together this huge event at a Indian reservation, Native American reservation, Yeah, where, it, man, they go all out with these parties. Like, it, like some of the coolest swag I've ever had, nobody in the room, like it wasn't a cybersecurity thing. I was the only cybersecurity speaker there. You know, we were doing live demonstrations, we were having fun, we were engaging, and we were teaching people who otherwise had never heard of it, right? Who otherwise had never heard any concepts in security. And, you know, I, I, I hope they got, they got some concept for me, but to hear them learn, to hear them engage, to hear them do something new, I think it one makes you a better speaker because you're not speaking to the same group of people over and over again. You know, you get, you get exposed to more and two, it's our target audience. Our target audience aren't, isn't each other anymore. You know, it's not it's not me and you saying, "Hey, buy my widget," or "This is why security matters." We know why security matters. They don't. Okay, switching it up to the other side. What are some
0: things about the information security industry that you're encouraged by? That you're happy to see happen?
1: The fact that we're in front of the game, we're in front of the power curve now. To see the progression for the last uh, twenty years. Right to go from what's cybersecurity? You know, it wasn't a term. It wasn't a real thing. It was we cybersecurity. Then it, before that, it was information assurance. Before that, it was information security. Before that, it was just IT, and it just kept going and going and going. To see that progression and to see the people who are who have been passionate about it the whole time, still passionate to see the evolution of groups like the 2600 group to see how how we've shifted how the focus gets shifted and people mature in their own crafts and they settle into the places where they are Oh, I got to stop you school. right there. Okay. Maturity
0: I am in I'm in one of those the 2600 group. Oh, I, don't, no, no, no. I don't know if you've I don't, been in I don't know if you've been in it in the last uh, week or so, but maturity oh, is
1: sorely lacking right now. I don't mean I don't mean maturity in terms of behavior. I mean maturity in terms of growth, right, how far it's come from Um, it used to be like, could you imagine there being a 2600 group on Facebook before Facebook was a thing? Could you imagine those people actually coming out and doing that? Like I went to 2600 meetings where we were, uh, we were hanging out at Starbucks. We were hanging out at the library. We're hanging out at at various different places where we had meetups before they were meetups, but then to see them progress into places like Facebook and to like see them progress onto the internet and to see them evolve into being more welcoming and less douchebaggish. Um, to newcomers for, for lack of a better term has been really cool to see. Now, as with any group, you have the people who are just like, Nope, I'm going to do what I feel like doing. I'm gonna do what I want. You know, rules, no nothing. And there has been a, we get back to the drama portion of it, you know, but the maturity of some of these things are, are what I love to see. You know, I know, uh, I know practitioners, I know analysts who started off with just an idea in their head, and you fast forward years later, they're now top of their game in certain places. I see people who who have learned new techniques, they've tried new things, they've experienced new places, and that's a level of maturity. And more so, I'm excited to the, f- the fact where we're seeing we're seeing less, we're seeing more seasoned people come out. You know, we're seeing more reasoned people come out, and we're seeing more real solutions or ideas to different things and we're seeing people take more risks. You know, I think those are all really good positives for how an industry grows and how it changes. I think we've gotten to the point now where where well correction a little bit ago we were at the point where we weren't taking ourselves too entirely entirely too seriously where we are now. So that's a kind of a step in the wrong direction, but we've got enough people paying attention where we're getting security built in and baked in and it's no longer reactionary. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Alrighty then, um, dude. This has been great.
1: Anything else you feel like adding? Well, no. Uh, RSA is coming. I'm looking forward to that. Catching up with folks. Uh, still going to mull over whether or not I'm going to go to going to get in on the capture the flag. You are my inspiration for that. Dude, you have to. You just yeah. just
0: submit. See if you get accepted. And and you know if 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 just do it, man. Just do it. it it's worth it. it. It'll be fun. All right. All right, man. Charles Tendell, if somebody listening would like to stalk you on the Internet, where can they find you?
1: Um, if you want to stalk me on the internet, um, you can do me at Charles Tendell on just about any social media. You can find me either on the Charles Tendell Show.com over there. You can find me on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those other places. You can find me out on Facebook. I've got a couple of really cool Facebook groups where we interact with people. You'd be amazed at some of the things that consumers ask about getting hacked. I um, mean, that's it. You can find me anywhere. You can find social media at Charles Tendell, and you can find me. You can also follow at Hackers List if you want a really crazy flood of all things happening in cybersecurity as best as I can curate them.
0: And that's Charles Tendell and Tendell is spelled
1: T-E-N-D-E-L-L. Correct? Yep. Yep. Like the number 10 and the computer Dell. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate it. Right on, man. Thanks for having me, man. I really
0: had a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, dude. Later, Charles. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and probably a dozen other platforms that I'm not even aware of. Check out vinceinthebay.com and hit me up on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash vinceinthebay. Until next time, ciao.